Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big stories we've been following all week is the fact that President Trump has refused to concede and still has numerous lawsuits hoping to overturn the outcome of the election. Meanwhile, the White House has ordered different agencies not to cooperate with the Biden transition team until the General Services Administration confirms the election. This office needs to sign paperwork that would release funds to the transition team and allow them to begin getting briefings from government offices. There are some that say this delay could have national security implications, and many are beginning to urge the president to admit that he lost the election. For more on how the GSA is holding up the transition, we'll speak to Lisa Ryan, national reporter at The Washington Post. So this has been a turbulent transition thus far, and uh, we really don't know if things are going to get more tense or less tense. But right now, as you said, the GSA, which is this federal agency that actually handles real estate, it's in charge of all the federal buildings. The administrator of that agency uh, is a woman named Emily Murphy, who is a Trump appointee. And her role is to basically write a letter once the president-elect in any administration has been declared. And that letter essentially kind of frees up a whole bunch of resources for an incoming president. So in this case of Biden, Biden team gets about six and a half million dollars in you know taxpayer money to hire people for their transition team, you know, get computers and a whole variety of equipment, stuff like that. But kind of one of the most important things is that the letter that she is supposed to write enables the Biden-Harris uh, team's to send their people into federal agencies, in this case, a lot of it would be remotely, but to have conversations with both Trump appointees and just permanent government civil servants who are there about what's happening at their agencies, what they need to focus on, look forward to, personnel issues, technology issues, what projects are underway, what risks are going on at their agencies. And, you know, these agencies have actually spent months which is part of the law, devising, you know, briefing booklets for the any incoming team that sort of says, okay, this is what the Department of Veterans Affairs is up to. You know, these are the programs. This is what's going on. And right now, none of that is happening. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. You hear Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in a news conference earlier, he said there will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. So everybody's <laughs> really holding out on this. Nope. A question yeah. about the GSA. Who signals to them to write this letter? I mean, uh, you know, they have to certify the election, I guess. That doesn't have to happen, I guess, until December 1st. Do they wait for that and then she would write this letter or can this be done before that? How does that part of it work? Right. That's such an important question because these are questions that are really not known yet, or maybe they're known by the Trump team. So Emily Murphy, you know, has, she has lawyers who are advising her. And in truth, her not releasing the transition resources is in keeping with the president's stance. And as you said, his, his decision to refuse to acknowledge Joe Biden as the winner of the election. So what she's doing is not really surprising, right? But it is sort of funny that this unknown like federal bureaucrat um, is sort of able to gum up the works. But so what the people at GSA have told us is that um, they're they're not really sure when she will decide to do that, because right now they believe there's no winner um, of the presidential race. Now, 
I, I think they're just trying to kind of take cover, you know, here because we don't know when the president's legal options will be exhausted. We know that the Electoral College meets December 14th, which is, you know, a long way away from now um, in terms of the 74 days that they have, you know, for a transition um, before Inauguration Day. And we do know that states are beginning to go through the process of certifying the election, right? So I think Pennsylvania may certify this week. We know that Georgia has a recount, so that's not going to happen. But, you know, North Carolina um, will begin to certify, uh, you know, some of the other battleground states, Wisconsin, uh, you know, Michigan. And so the states where, you know, Trump is contesting the election are really dwindling. So it's really not clear whether the act of certification um, is going to be the trigger or, you know, the recount in Georgia could also take a few weeks. So I just I think the Trump folks, they do, you know, have a lot of leeway legally because the, the law, it's called the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. It's a little bit vague on what constitutes a this is very bureaucratic, but an ascertainment of the winner of the election. <laughs> Joe, <laughs> very bureaucratic. But right. yeah, so there's a lot of leeway here. Joe Biden, for his Part, has already spoken about this. He said that the transition is underway. And kind mm-hmm. of what's happening is, I like the way you mentioned in your article, a shadow transition is beginning to take shape. So Joe Biden and his team are, content, you know, he is the former vice president. He's been in those offices. He knows what it's like. So they're contacting a bunch of people that they've known who might have left recently from the administration. And they're really just trying to lay the ground the, the groundwork for uh, uh, making a transition regardless if the White House is helping out. That's right. And what we saw today also was that the the transition team actually released um, its it's called an agency review team. These are the teams that are going to go, you know, into federal agencies and talk with officials there. But they list they released a list of 500 names. We did a little story about this and they've got this up on their website. Um, And these are the experts. And as you said, these are people who have served in government. Many of them served in the Obama administration, which is, as we know, is only four years ago. Right. So Trump was really hadn't been in in that long. Um, And you're right. You know, there are lots of conversations happening. It's not like Democrats have been out of power for eight or even 12 years. They've been hanging around Washington and, you know, kind of opining on the Trump administration on on cable news, uh, you know, and so they're around. And so I think that, you know, this sort of shadow transition um, is really happening. And so right now we just, you know, look, this is only day, what is it, day three, day four, Saturday, Sunday, day four, since Biden was, uh, you know, was was declared the winner. Um, But, you know, if this goes on for too long, I think, you know, what people are worried about is national security implications, because when you have an uncertain and unstable transition, this is when, you know, when bad actors can really try to exploit this. And that's not a good thing. Yeah. uh, One of the notes you mentioned here is that in 2000, it took until December 12th for the Bush administration to begin that transition process. And a lot of people said uh, you know, that there was a critical vulnerability to national security. This was, uh, you know, cited in the 9-11 Commission report. So, um, you know, right. it, it can matter, you know, if something pops up in the meantime, you know, a lot of this can matter. And and one final point, it's not exactly like the Biden team has been shut out completely. I guess they have been given government-issued computers, iPhones for conducting some type of communications already and some space in Washington. But 
just those critical uh, packets that have been already been prepared haven't been shared yet. That's right. And, and, you know, Biden is getting some intelligence briefings. um, And while it's true that the State Department cannot coordinate calls from foreign leaders, you know, the more formal in a more formal way, uh, you know, foreign leaders are are calling him just, you know, I guess, cell phone to cell phone, uh, which and, you know, to congratulate him and discuss, you know, whatever they're discussing. So there are a lot of informal channels, but it'll just be fascinating to watch how long this drags out. And and it is true that not only, you know, when the Bush team, uh, George W. Bush team, um, you know, they only had, I think, a 39-day transition. Um, you know, it did hurt them in the sense that, you know, they didn't get a lot of their, um, you know, their appointees uh, confirmed by the Senate or just even in place, the ones who didn't need confirmation for longer. And And then, you know, we know we had September 11th. So, you know, these are real, real, there are real repercussions. Right. They just haven't happened yet that I, we know of. I echo your sentiment with everything being so public right now and so much scrutiny. It is going to be interesting to see how this transition does work out. So we'll keep watching on it. Lisa Ryan, national reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And please do it again if you can. Also this week, we got a big shakeup at the Pentagon. President Trump fired Defense Secretary Mark Esper by tweet. Three other top Pentagon officials were also replaced. This exit had been expected for some months as the relationship between Esper and the White House has deteriorated. Mark Esper had his first public break with the president when he wanted to use active duty troops in D.C. to put down violent protests after the death of George Floyd. And despite his critics calling him Yesper, The former defense secretary says that he was never a yes man. For more on Mark Esper's tenure as defense secretary, we'll speak to Megan Myers, Pentagon bureau chief at the Military Times. It had been rumored for months that uh, either maybe Esper would resign or the president would fire him. Um, As the election got closer, it kind of became apparent that nobody wanted to uh, influence the election either way with, uh, you know, throwing that national security position into turmoil. So they kind of tabled it. But of course, uh, one business day after, uh, you know, media outlets called the election, uh, Trump decided, all right, well, Esper's out. Uh, Technically, Esper got a call from um, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows a few minutes before the tweet went out. So he had a little bit of a heads up that it was coming. But in a larger sense, he had a feeling. uh, The feeling was that Trump would would fire him uh, after the election. But he was very clear that he didn't want to resign. Uh, And the reason for that was he felt like he was doing good work here uh, and was as responsibly and strategically as he could trying to implement the president's um, request, the president's commands, um, despite sometimes uh, having some tension over whether, over his judgment, really. Yeah. And one of the quotes in the article specifically was saying, you know, I'm not trying to make anybody happy. I'm just trying to fill what the commander in chief wants. And that's a tough line to balance there. You mentioned also in the article that he was dubbed Yesper by some of his critics. But that was one thing that he really was strong on, that saying that, you know, I wasn't a yes man for the president. Mm-hmm. Well, he was very conscious, um, both in office and, and, and anticipating leaving office. He was conscious of um, his legacy and the way that he was portrayed. And so from his point of view, he was not carrying the president's water. He was trying to do what was 
best for uh, for the Defense Department while carrying out what the president had asked him to do. And he resented being called Jesper because that nickname kind of came about pretty soon after he very publicly broke with the president and said that he did not believe that uh, the Insurrection Act was warranted in D.C. to um, control protests and the rioting in front of the White House. Um, And that was directly contrary to what the president had been threatening for days at that point. Um, So he felt like he really had put his foot down. He had not kowtowed. Um, But of course, in the larger view of, you know, people watching what was going on between them, it really did look like the president says jump and, you know, Esper said how high, even though that's not how he saw it. Yeah, one of the other points of contention, I guess, too, was when uh, he approved some of that military money to be moved over to build President Trump's border wall. I guess that's another point where critics would say he was a yes man to that because, you know, obviously when that happened, that was just huge news. And a lot of people were making something about it because they were moving money away from military construction projects. Right. And, you know, from from Esper's uh, standpoint, that was a perfectly legal request. Um, And, you know, in the military, in this chain of command, even between these two top civilians, Um, You know, the commander in chief issues you a lawful order and you follow it. And if you don't want to follow it, you quit. But there's no there's no responding to him and saying, no, I'm not going to do this. You have to deal with the fallout, whatever the fallout is. And if it is past your red line, then you submit your resignation. But, you know, from his point of view, that was that was a lawful order, even if some found it, you know, distasteful. And so. He carried it out Um, in other situations, you know, when he felt a little more unsure about what the president was asking him, he would try to as responsibly as possible um, fulfill what the president uh, had asked him to do or give him the best advice, the widest range of advice, the most options that he could come up with um, and try to finesse the situation a little bit. One of the top priorities for Mark Esper was the national defense strategy. It was a shift involving North Korea, Russia, China. How did that play out for him? I think he is proud of the work that he was able to do, sort of the groundwork he was able to lay after um, James Mattis quit the SecDef job. Basically, at this point, you know, it was a lot of writing the NDS into the budget, making sure that the first, you know, layers of groundwork got laid and were paid for uh, and were also supported by people on Capitol Hill, people in the White House, the people who have control over how these things happen. And his goal was to uh, affect irreversible change for the national defense strategy so that when he was gone, when the Trump administration was gone, they would be on a path that someone couldn't just come in and um, you know immediately sweep away. And he felt like he had accomplished that. Mark Esper did say that he was going to be holding in tough. He didn't ever expected to quit, even when he kind of heard rumblings that he might be fired and all. Although he did say that there was one time that he came close to quitting, and that was surrounding Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. This was after all the testimony in the impeachment proceedings. Right. So he said, basically a few months after um, Vindman testified, there rumors started going around that, uh, you know, Vindman had, had been selected to go to the Army War College and he was supposed to be, you know, he was expected to be uh, promoted to colonel, but then the Army had not put out its um, colonel promotion list, which is, you know, for, for officers, the Army, at every rank, the Army will put out a list periodically um, after they've made their selections for who's promotable. And that list was held up 
and the only explanation, the explanation that Vinman's camp was giving and that some other experts were giving was that um, this was being held up as retribution for what Vinman had said about the president. And behind the scenes, the secretary of the army had had approved it. Esper says that he had approved it. And he said, uh, you know, if he's qualified, go for it uh, and we'll see what happens. Um in the end, Vindman ended up uh, ended up retiring uh, just to kind of get out of the fray. But Esper said, if the White House had overturned my decision to allow him to be promoted to colonel, I would have resigned. That would have been a red line for him. Um, he would have seen that as um, unethical and something that he was not going to be involved in. So what was the major dysfunction between Esper and the White House. You had mentioned using military forces to kind of clear crowds. This was, you know, when the George Floyd protests were happening. I think Mark Esper was one of the people that was walking with the president. Later, he had Mm -hmm. to say, I didn't really know that that was the purpose of it, et cetera, et cetera. I know that was a big point of contention, but what was the big major dysfunction between them? That was a lot of it. I think the probably the biggest thing they butted heads about or that there was tension about would be Esper saw uh, his job, his role as very apolitical. He saw the Department of Defense as apolitical, um, despite him obviously being a Trump political appointee and therefore serving at the pleasure of the president and, um, you know, and and essentially put in this job to do the president's bidding, you know, for lack of a, a more graceful term. But Esper really tried to stay out of politics, tried to take the president's orders and enact them in the most thoughtful way possible. And he really resented that he went to the White House to have a meeting and ended up, you know, in this walk across Lafayette Square after it had been forcibly cleared, uh, you know, using tear gas and rubber bullets. Uh, and that he was then, you know, asked to take a picture with the president in front of this church, and which was an incredibly political move. He did not like being used that way. Um, and then, of course, you know, he's not going to come out and say that because he doesn't want to get fired. So his kind of next step was to come into the Pentagon briefing room, you know, the following day and say, I don't think that the Insurrection Act is necessary for what we are seeing in Washington, D.C. right now. And that really angered the president. Um, And from there, you know, things just kind of unraveled. Yeah, I mean, even the Confederate flag became a big issue when they were trying to ban that on military bases and all. He issued an order that, you know, also banned, uh, you know, rainbow flags and things like that. And then that became an issue that he got accused of banning that, not just the Confederate flag. So despite his best attempts to stay apolitical, he was kind of always dragged back into it. What's next for him? Obviously, he'll probably enjoy a little bit of time off, but does he have any plans on the horizon? You know, I don't know. I didn't get a chance to ask him that in the interview. I think the assumption has widely been that he will go back into uh, the defense industry, which is where he was immediately before being in the Pentagon. But his prior resume also involves uh, working at a think tank and a conservative think tank in D.C., um, working on Capitol Hill. So he kind of has all sorts of options. It really just depends on, um, you know, where he lands and who who is willing to take on his expertise with, of course, the baggage of him just having served in this administration. Megan Myers, Pentagon Bureau Chief at the Military Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.